So with that said, we're going to jump back into our text today, and we're sort of at the back end of John chapter 20. If you have been with us for the past few weeks, you know that we've been steadily walking through this text of Jesus and Mary Magdalene at the, the tomb of Jesus, where he was resurrected. And I want to encourage you to listen to those teachings that are online. They are not necessary for you to sort of engage what we're going to talk about today, but they are helpful because it gives you a backdrop and a framework of where we have been and where we, have, or where we are going. So this passage of scripture that we're looking at today chronicles what has been going on since Easter. And I share this with you each week at the beginning of my teaching, that for a lot of us in the Christian faith, Easter is sort of a one-shot deal. Uh, We show up and have a big dynamic worship service, and then we sort of fade away into Christendom for the rest of the year. But if you read what's going on in in the Gospel of John, and obviously the other Gospels, Easter was not the end of anything. It was the beginning of everything. And so what we've been doing is sort of in a parallel way, looking at what happened in the weeks that followed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so today we're continuing to study a passage of Scripture in John chapter 20, verses 17 through 20, that teach us the importance of sharing our faith. That's what we started talking about last week. And we are also referencing John 17. I did a message on that a few weeks ago, because in John 17, we get the content of what we are supposed to be sharing. Jesus prays in John 17 that his followers, his disciples, before he goes to the cross, they would know that he has come to give them life and life eternal. Not just life in heaven, that's a super big part of this, but life abundant right now. In other words, there is a dynamic God wants us to experience in life, a fullness that only comes through knowing and pursuing Jesus deeply. It is that which he prays that his disciples would experience and share with the world. And in John 20 is when we begin to see the first steps of God's people, in particular Mary, first evangelist in the Christian world as a woman who loved Jesus deeply and was given one of the first commands to go and tell others about what he had done. And so today we continue this talk on sharing our faith, or at least some of the tenets of it. And I want to begin this morning by sharing a story with you. The first time I ever shared my faith. I became a Christian at 23. I was a late learner in life, had no desire to know God. I mean, really, I was moving in direction A, and I had an intersection with Jesus that I never thought was possible. It was amazing, uh, the sort of Pauline conversion I had. And what I loved about this is when I became a Christian in my 20s, I was super blessed to have people in my life who took a serious interest in discipling me. If you want to know why discipleship is so critical to the life of our body, one, it's because it's so deeply biblical. But two, people who have really experienced it and invested in others in the same way know that something pretty powerful happens when we dwell in the truths of Jesus, live in them, and then try to help others embrace them and grow in them. We deal with their questions, their doubts, their concerns, their sorrows, their fears. We encourage. That's what discipling is. It's exhorting each other to become more like Christ. And so I didn't know anything different. When I became a Christian, these people, they took a serious interest in me, a vested interest in me. They were helping me to understand the decision I made to follow Christ. And they were telling me time and time again that the way Jesus was working in my life was meant to be learned in such a way that I could turn around and share it with others. That God's saving grace for me was not for me alone. That was taught to me from the very first moment of knowing Jesus. Everything I was getting was like a we thing, an us thing. And it was meant to not be stored up in me, but it was meant to sort of be built up in me and spread to others. And so because of that, I began immediately praying and looking for opportunities in my natural spheres of influence to share the love and grace of God. I just was told that's what you should do, and that's what I started doing. And I found out that when you pray and watch, which is a term we'll talk about 
a little bit today, but more so in the months that follow, praying and watch simply means the best way, I think, to see God do anything is to really get before him in prayer, to let your needs be known. In this case, we're talking about God giving us the eyes, the sensitivity, to see and sense who it is in our lives that need care and encouragement, love, maybe need Jesus directly. We pray for these things, and then with a very patient heart, we watch God work. It's the best of all worlds. We can have responsibility before God, but not be pressured by the, the fake sort of syndrome in Christianity that often plagues Christianity, that if I don't, God won't. There's something really great about the fact that God's kingdom is still his kingdom, and we get to participate in it. So I started praying and watching, praying for God to show me people I could talk to his son about, and to show me go and tell opportunities. And my first opportunity arose in my workplace just a few months after coming to faith. And I'll never forget the story I'm about to share with you because God used it in a, in a way, in a large way, to shape who he's made me today, in part anyways. So I'd been working for a few hours. I was at this job for about four years. And one of my supervisors approached me and said he wanted to talk to me. He was my boss, without question, but also somebody that I considered a pretty good friend. We actually hung out regularly outside of work. And he had observed for the better part of a year the whole process of me becoming a Christian. I was a really hard sell with this. I mean, super hard sell. And as I was hearing this stuff and people were talking to me about Jesus, this was the second attempt in my life. Some people had started this in my mid-teens, but I wanted nothing to do with it at that point. This whole process was unfolding, and he was observing this. I didn't realize that, but he was. And so eventually we started having light dialogue about this. He was asking me what, I, what was going on, and I was telling him I got a bunch of crazy religious people telling me that I need Jesus. That's literally what I would tell him. And the story I'm sharing you, with you right now is what happened when he really inquired about it. There was one night where something very much changed, and I would say this is when God made his move and invited me to follow. So while working, he asked to speak to me in private, and he, I obliged his request. I didn't know what he wanted to talk about, but he brought me into his office, and he said, uh, when, we, when we were alone, he said, listen, uh, simply put, he said, I've known you for a very long time, and recently I see something very different about you. You're changing. That's literally what he said. I didn't realize this, but he did, apparently. He said, it's like you're becoming a different person. And then he said, the reason I want to talk to you is because I want to know what's causing this. Why is this happening? It was sort of like God threw me a big softball there. And that's when it happened. Without a doubt, I told him, you must believe in Jesus or you're going to hell. Right there. I did not say that, obviously. That would be the worst way that we could actually engage our neighbor for Jesus, right? There might be a time to talk about that, but I was trying to be in this man's head and heart. And I just followed what I really felt like God told me to say there. Without a doubt, what happened here, this was the first time Jesus gave me the opportunity to go and tell, like he did Mary. And so I tried my best to answer his question. And what I'm about to say, I want you to hear, because it's, all, it's almost always uh, an impediment for us to embrace a teaching like this. You, sometimes, I think, when we talk to folks who are in professional ministry, like pastors, folks who are maybe really gifted in this, we tend to say, well, this stuff comes easy for you guys because, well, you've been trained in it, or maybe, you know, you just have a natural ability for it. That is certainly true to a certain degree, but if you look at the movement of Christianity, it is never in, like, the paid clergy, if you will, that the kingdom of God moves forward. We have a role in this, don't get me wrong, but there is something much more significant that God moves his kingdom forward through. And what I would say is it's the body of Christ. It's every single person, no matter where they're coming from. And so when I tell you the story, I had not been to seminary yet. I wasn't serving in a local church. I was like fresh out the shoot of Christianity. At that moment, I was just somebody 
that somebody shared Jesus with who was now talking to another guy who had some questions about Jesus. And I think the more we recognize that that is what our responsibility to go and tell is, the more we will take the sharp edge off of this and the more likely it has a more commonplace in our life. And so all I did that night was tell him my faith story. It was not eloquent or pretty. I just simply answered my friend's question by telling him that I could not fully explain what was happening. But I was, it was super clear to me at that moment the reason it was happening. I told him I had a ton of questions and doubts. The real heady type. That's the way I work. All the major like apologetic objections. I was pounding the people that were trying to lead me to Jesus about this stuff. And eventually their care for me just began to win me over. There was a, a tripping point you might say. There was a time when I chose to place my life in Christ's hands. And he, I told this guy, faithful to his promise, was taking my life and reshaping it. Slowly but surely, he was making me look like him. And I just pointed out one thing. The one thing I knew in that moment was that the difference he was seeing, and this is true for any of us that have been in Christ for some time, the difference he saw was not about me. That's what I tried to point out. It was more about God working out a new life in me. We just sang this multiple times. And that's when I did it. After telling him that, I just said, hey, I also want you to know that what Jesus did for me and is doing in me isn't just for me. Tons of people have told me this, and I keep reading this book of, called The Gospel of John, and every time I read it, I keep hearing Jesus say, he wants to do this on all people, including you. And I asked him if he wanted that, simply. I just said, whatever you're seeing, do you want it? And he said, yes, and I didn't know what to do then. I was shocked. Like, I, I didn't say, well, come to my church. We meet Sundays at 10 a.m. at the movie theater. I didn't even know what baptism was fully at that point. It was crazy. I just said, awesome. And we talked about that in the months that followed. Now, that night, straight up, was the first time I had helped somebody find Jesus. And I will tell you, it was a pretty amazing moment. Something deeply profound happened there. Because for the first time, I had watched somebody receive Christ. And when I did, I finally realized why the people who helped me to find Jesus were so moved by that moment. From that moment on, God etched something very important on my heart about the life of a disciple. And we've seen this throughout the whole story of Jesus and Mary Magdalene. Mary is such a devout follower of Jesus, and she has this major faith crisis at the tomb. She is wondering where Jesus is and cannot in her mind fathom the fact that he actually did what he said he was going to do, that he has resurrected. She's looking in the tomb for Jesus, and he is literally standing behind her. And what I learned is that Jesus wants us to be the type of people who go and tell. And while it looks different for each person, please hear what I'm saying right now. While it looks different for every person, based on how God has created us and gifted us and the natural spheres of influence he's put in us. This is not a homogenous sermon. It isn't sort of like the way it happened with Mary or the way it happened with me is the way it happens with all of us. It happens very differently with all of us. For example, if you are a person who, like I've always sort of been inclined to teaching, I've loved doing it for a very long time. So it makes sort of sense that that is one of the ways God would use his truth in my life. It's, he's given me the gift, so now I use it. But some of you are incredibly sort of, you have this robust heart for mercy ministry or caring for people. And I'm telling you that that is the way God will use it. However you, whoever you are, God has wired you in a certain way. And when I say go and tell, I don't mean that we all need to look like the Apostle Paul. What I simply mean is we should really desire to know who God has made us and then lead out of the wirings he has put in us. So it looks different for every single person. It looks different depending on the spheres of influence that we're in. But the bottom line is that going and telling is something God deeply wants us to do. And I want to say this, that our, our life and faith in Christ will be somewhat incomplete 
I would even go so far as to say somewhat sold short if we're not deeply aware of the fact that what God has done in our lives, he desires us to share with the people he has put in our lives. It was never meant to end on Easter. It was never meant to end with us. Our lives are a comma in the story of the kingdom of God. Simply put, the truth that led us to life in Jesus is a truth he wants us sharing with people who have yet to find life in Jesus. And this truth, which we began studying last week when we talked about Jesus' command to Mary to go and tell the others about what she had seen and experienced through his resurrection, is what I want to continue pressing into today. Because like we said last week, in our modern Christian culture, and this is true of the Western world in general, the trend we see today is that people are more inclined to read about truth and then move on to another truth rather quickly. We have been habituated to learn, to process this way. Just look at your email inbox tomorrow and you'll see what I'm talking about. If you even check it anymore, you'll get 6,000 emails from people telling you what you should do and then another one that'll tell you what you should do and they're often conflicting pieces of information. We're sort of hardwired in our world now to hear stuff and move on very quickly. I know like 15 years ago, I used to use a little PC I was working on. Now, you know, one little computer, one screen. Now I have a big Mac with like 38,000 windows open on it, and I'm tooling through that like a kid who's got too much Ritalin in my body. That's what it looks like. We are wired to move this way. But what I'm telling you is that to really engage truth, to really press into the more significant matters of the faith, requires us to not just see truth and move to other truths. It requires, in sharp contrast, the definition, the path of a disciple, is one where we're supposed to imbibe truth, and then really press into it, really wrestle with it, really live in light of it. And that's what this teaching shows us. Mary's world is rocked. She finds just this renewed faith she has in Jesus, and it immediately changes what she is doing in her life. And so this teaching really impresses upon us why correcting this, this attitude is important. I'm not against truth. I'm just saying we want to make sure that truth actually has enough time in our hearts to take root and to reshape us. And in this passage, uh, Mary's desire to go tell is perhaps the greatest evidence that Mary's faith was renewed in Jesus, that she actually deeply believed what he was saying to her about his resurrection in her life. It wasn't just a fact and then she left. It was a fact that then reshaped every step she took after that moment. What is the action I'm sort of alluding to here? Her experience with God was so profound that it caused her to go and tell others about the God she had an experience with. That's what happened. God moved in her life in a way that then compelled her to share the story. It wasn't canned. It wasn't sort of like pre-planned. There was just something that God did that created a contagious sort of spirit in her. And when Jesus says, no, go and tell the others, that's what she does. And so this leads me to the only truth I want to share with you this morning. There is just one. It is similar to what we talked about last week, but it's promised it will be a little more practical in its application. When we truly experience the grace of Jesus in our own life, we should desire to share it with others. That's the bottom line here. That's what this passage, the rest of John 20, and the whole book of Acts teaches us. People are having an experience with God, and they are in love with God, so they want to help other people have that same experience. They want to help other people know the Jesus they have come to know. I want to reread John 20, 17 through 18 to you, so you see the, the context there. Jesus said to Mary, do not hold on to me. This is when she realizes who Jesus is. Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Hang on to those words. We're going to talk about them momentarily. 
Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had, see, uh, excuse me, told them that he had said these things to her. So she sees Jesus. She has now sort of recognized he is who he says he is. And Jesus commands her to tell that to people, to the brethren, the others who were wondering what had happened to him. And in these verses, Jesus tells Mary, now that she's deeply experienced this truth, she must go and tell it to others. That's the simple you know, end cap to this profound passage of Scripture. And what I want to talk about today is the relational truth that Jesus communicates here. Because something has dramatically changed in Jesus' language here. He is telling something to Mary about the nature of the relationship we now have with God because of what he has done on the cross. And it really drives home how amazing what Jesus did on the cross for God is. What he did for us, how amazing it is. It proves that when he said it is finished, it really was finished. And his redemptive work was done. There was no more work to do there, at least in that element of the cross. It is this truth, in a very embryonic way, that Jesus commissions Mary to begin sharing with others. And it lays the foundation for what Jesus wants us to deeply believe and tell to others. And it is found in a very subtle but profound nature of the pronouns that, God, that describe God in verse 17. The language flips here a little bit. Let me explain what I mean. It is in that verse, right, where Jesus starts saying, like, my God and your God. Like, our God is what he's saying. My Father and your Father. Our Father. It changes dramatically. The cross has remedied something. Like, our, possessive, our God, he's saying here. It is in this verse that Jesus tells Mary, right, about the God of the Old Testament who could not be looked upon without facing a certain death. Think about this. Jesus is talking to Mary about the Old Testament God who could not be looked upon. If you did, you would pass away. That's how serious his holiness was. The God who once required a sacrificial system in a tabernacle and then a temple. That had to be done repeatedly in order to acquire and secure the forgiveness of sin. It is the same God he's talking about here who had the authority and the power to drop his fist on the world and destroy it all at a whim's notice for how far humanity had strayed from him. That This God, the one I'm talking about right now, the God who then, when you think about the story of him and Moses, right? Moses simply caught a glimpse of him while being hidden behind a rock in the Old Testament. And in that moment, he is so lit up, like radioactively lit up because of the passing backside of God. And we know dogmatically that had he fully been in God's presence at that moment, it would have certainly killed him. That is the narrative of being in the presence of God like that throughout the whole Old Testament. Jesus says that this God, mighty powerful, infinite in his wisdom. This God, whom Jesus regularly referred to as his father, is now our God and our father. No more temple, no more tabernacle, no more priesthood. He says, go and tell them what I've done. Tell them my God is our God. My father is our father. Man, I thought I'd get at least a single amen to that. Maybe you're like, you talk too fast. I can't even fit one in. All right, that's, I get it. I'm good with that. I'll work on that. I'll work on it. Sorry, I just get excited. <laughs> Think about this. This truth accomplished on the cross, right? And validated by his resurrection is what Jesus tells Mary. One of the earliest evangelists Christianity had to go and to tell, uh, told to go and tell to others. I always like to say when we talk about Mary, you know, there's a, a misnomer today in Christianity that, that it devalues women. And if you look at some of the most profound roles that people have in the first century world, they are women. This is not out of coincidence we can see the equality of humanity, Jesus using all people for his purposes. And here Mary gets the honor of being the first person to start telling people about this truth, to go and tell others. And it is my genuine prayer that this truth is one we would never just get and move on from. 
Rather, it would be a, a driving truth that we seek not only to know, but to grow in. It is the foundation, really knowing it, for how we are sort of compelled to talk to people about Christ. Because this truth will utterly redefine your life and understand, help you to understand your redeemed identity in Jesus. That's what it does. It gives us a new set of bearings, a new compass heading for life. It reshapes our identity. How? Well, how is it meant to be the fuel that drives your relationship in Jesus? Here's why. When we truly know this, when one truly imbibes this, I mean like sort of it, it sits on their heart, their heart marinates in this truth. When you truly wrestle with the reality of who Jesus says you now are before God, truly live in light of the fact that when you are in Jesus, you are now a child of the risen king. That's what this passage means, one of the things anyways. Once you deeply understand that Jesus has invited you to call him his father to, in the same way like he does, my goodness, that should change something in us. The natural outcome of a heart that genuinely knows this should be a God-honoring desire to share this with other people. In the same way we sort of rave about and care about certain things in our life, we get excited about them, restaurants, movies, certain friendships, even relationships, there is a declarative nature to this relationship that should be etched into our hearts. I do not think it is a coincidence that Jesus charges Mary to immediately tell others about this truth when she has owned it in her own heart. And when I read this, it raised a great many questions for me. But there was one that stood out above all the others. It's the one I want to wrestle with this morning with you for a few more minutes. Why, out of everything that Jesus could have said to Mary here, right after his resurrection, did he say this? I mean, he could have said a million things. But why, out of everything, does he say this right here? Why is this the, the first sort of evidence of a life changed in Jesus? Why is this the first thing we see? Well, I think there is a solid answer here. And again, it is based on the central nature of what the cross did for us. The cross started something. It finished something and started something. Jesus' words show us that the foundational truth he wants us to embrace and share with others is that the exclusive, the once exclusive relationship he had with God like this is now being offered to all people. That is what is most mind-bending about this. And this is, I think, what he wants us to know. The, the script has flipped. He is now saying, because of what I have done, because it is finished, I now offer you the very same thing I have with my Father, our Father in heaven. In other words, the dynamic, life-giving relationship Jesus has with his Father is not meant to be an exclusive intimacy he alone has with God. It's now meant to be spread and shared. Nor is it meant to be an exclusive relationship that we share with God. It's not meant to be something that we experience, celebrate, and then hide under a rock. If you read passages in the Gospels, we hear things about like our lives are now lights in the world. We're meant to be a city on a hill. We're meant to illuminate the darkness wherever we go. It is one, this dynamic life that God freely shares with Jesus. That's the whole point of his life on earth. One of them anyways. We get to see this dynamic and robust relationship he has with God. And he shares this relationship with his disciples. And he freely shares this with Mary. In fact, some of Jesus' most profound last words to his followers are recorded later in his prayer in John 17. We read that for, for context this morning, earlier during worship. John 17, that passage where Jesus talks about him having the authority to bring life to the world. But after that, what happens is he pleads before God. He starts praying to God at, that after he is gone, hours before his death, after he is gone, his disciples would deeply live in that and that they would share the love God had for Jesus. He prays that we would be unified in our love and pursuit of Jesus Christ, and that that would be something visible to the world that we live in. As we share him with people, that prayer, this is what I love about the back end of John, that is Jesus' prayer. 
And in John 20, we begin to see it take form. Now, perfectly, there's tons of challenges that this prayer meets, especially as we read the rest of the Bible. And there are challenges we face today. But the bottom line is, anytime there is a desire to go and tell, I want you to think about this. It is an answered prayer from the Son of God because he began to pray for this right before he went to the cross. He was foreshadowing what the cross was going to do. So when somebody tells you about Jesus, it is an answered prayer. It is God honoring the words of Christ. It is them moving their kingdom forward. His followers were not not meant to be the types of people who just simply saw what Jesus did for them as something he had only done for them. Rather, his desire was that they would be so moved by what he had done for them that their love for him would be so substantial that they would be compelled to share it with the rest of the world. That with increasing compassion and influence, they would go and tell others what he had done for them and now wants to do in the life of others. The fear and the doubt and the concerns, all the stuff that had plagued Mary in that moment, Jesus says, now tell them what happened. Tell them that the resurrection has corrected this, that you don't need to be afraid anymore. I'm here. I mean, I'm about to ascend, but I'm here. What I said was going to happen, happened. So one of the great truths the cross declares to us is that God created us to have a deep and meaningful intimacy with him. And it is his desire that humanity would turn from these mere shells of a life that we live in, these false pursuits that we often you know, give our lives to. Oftentimes we sort of think we know what real life is. But what we learn here is that there's a, a different type of life that God wants us to have. And without Christ, our life can be full and meaningful, but never to the degree that Jesus speaks about here. What God desires is that we would choose to return to this abundant eternal life that Jesus is telling Mary to share with others that he prayed for in John 17. And so you see a teaching like this gives us another thought to weigh about God's love in our life. It shows us that people, and I mean this confidently, people can absolutely live in this world without knowing God and they can have a good life. This, I'm not saying like without Jesus we'll be miserable. Some people might be. What I'm saying is this, I want you to think of it from a different perspective. We will never have the type of fullness of life God has designed and created us for, like Jesus speaks about here, until we know Jesus. So it's sort of like we can have a really good life on earth without Jesus, but we can have a much greater life, a much more abundant life, a much more dynamic life with Jesus on earth, and then for all of eternity. It's sort of like, you know, what grade of life do you choose to pursue? And I'll take this a step further. As believers, if you're a Christian now, I'm speaking to you. To live with this truth in our hearts without the desire to share it with others is also a way that we as God's people live a life that is not as full or complete as God has designed it to be. We can know God, we can love God, but we will never fully know and love God the way he desires if we do not take seriously what we're reading here. It's sort of like incomplete is the way I would say it. One of our greatest joys in God's kingdom should be that we long for and labor towards others knowing and growing in Jesus in the same way Jesus speaks of here. Jesus longs for and labors towards other people knowing his father, like he knows his father. That was his mission on earth. And so when we do not embrace this, again, in whatever form God leads us to, I'm not saying it needs to look like Mary here. I'm just saying the burden to bless our neighbor with word and deed in whatever way God provides opportunities, that's the burden. That every Christian is responsible for. The expression of that might look different, but the heart attitude should not. Simply put, here's how we begin to wrap up. The first truth the risen Jesus commands Mary to share with others is what his resurrection accomplished. That's what he says here. Now, here's where we get practical. 
sharing Jesus with people can be a very intimidating task for some. And oftentimes I think that is because we elevate it to a place that I don't even think God meant it to be elevated to. I say this sort of on a regular basis that whenever we see or hear these commands in the Bible, we tend to immediately categorize them in the sensational. We tend to put them like we think of people sharing life, or sharing Jesus with people. You think of you know, the recent passing of a Billy Graham or folks who are given these hyper-evangelistic gifts. That's not what I'm talking about here. I mean, for, for all I know, you might be the next Billy Graham. I'm not against that at all. I'm just saying oftentimes God works in more simple ways, not necessarily sensational ways in our lives. But I don't ever want you to kind of mix up the fact that God simply working in your life is not something sensational because it is. Again, we look at the root of what we're talking about here, not the expression. Simply being faithful to this is a sensational thing because it means you are now walking in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. And so I want to sort of remove the daunt, if you will, from this this morning. And that's why I want to give you four brief but very practical steps you can take to structure your life in such a way that it becomes a platform to go and tell others about Jesus like Jesus tells Mary to. You think about this. Most of what we do in life requires us to sort of create a framework around us to do it. We, we sort of are cultivating the soil of our hearts to grow a certain type of fruit. We're in school and we want to get a certain degree in a certain field. So we sort of begin to think about what our life needs to look like to make that happen. The same is true here. You know, you want to succeed in your vocation. You have to think about what life looks like to see that through. The same is true here. We have to sort of have a framework to understand what God wants from us. And so what I want to say here is that what we talk about, if you're already telling others about Jesus, these steps can sort of help us to be more effective. If you're not, I really encourage you to let them be a starting point to do so. And I've shared these with you before, about a year ago, and I know all of you remember this like perfectly, and you probably have like 6,000 pages of notes from what I say on Sunday, right? So a year ago we talked about this, but I want you to hear why I'm sharing it again. If they are familiar to you, I want to ask you to kindly pray about whether or not you practice them. This is a great time for us to look at truth and see to what degree has it penetrated our hearts and sort of shaping our lives. Because remember, the mark that we actually know a truth in the Christian paradigm anyways is not that we can just recite it. It's not that we can just say, oh yeah, Jesus tells us to go and tell. That's important. That's the first step of truth. We engage it with our minds. But the evidence of truth is really seen when it penetrates the hearts and shapes the hands. It shapes what we do. The mark that we know a truth cannot just be something verbally recited. It's actually something much more significant than that. It has to shape sort of how we live in light of it. And so if this is not new to you, ask if it's something that you see in your life, a rhythm. If they are new to you, I ask you to pray about how God can make this a part of your life and know that we are here in any way we can support you here. So if you have questions about any of this stuff, let us know that and we'll do our best to disciple and sort of exhort you into making these a reality in your life. Four quick things I want to share. Please do not mistake my brevity for a lack of importance. The first thing I would say here is to commit to pray for God to make and keep your heart sensitive to his redemptive mission. What I want to say here is that no great work in God's economy has ever happened without his people praying. I mean, we are literally looking at something happening in John 20 because Jesus himself prayed about it in John 17. We are witnessing the fruit of prayer. The older I have gotten and the more I have served in God's church, the more of a reality this statement has become to me. I think, there is, especially for those of us that sort of work the plow, we're the types of people who really get stuff done, what can happen is we can sort of do many things for God, kind of disconnected from, from the author of whom we're doing the things for. And so when it comes to having a burden, having a passion 
for people who are far from God, I'm telling you that is a supernatural burden. And it requires us to really make sure that we, before we do anything, are asking God to empower our lives to do something. So don't just think we can come out of here with a list and see you know, our lives reshaped for a burden for God. What I am saying is you have to start this by asking God to raise up laborers to go and tell. And we have to be at the front end of that prayer. We can't pray for God to raise up laborers to, you know, for the harvest, like Jesus says, and think we're not included in that prayer. So at the top of that list should be, God, raise me up as a laborer. Raise me up as a person who you know, sows seed and waters and maybe even reaps fruit at times in life. Make me the type of person who sees that and is sensitive to that. Show me who you have placed in my life. Show me whom the message goes to. Because remember, what we're talking about each week, what we process in community groups throughout the week, what we live out in our workplaces and in our school environments, wherever we go, these are what we call the things of God. They are his values. And if you want his values to be your values, you have to let God reshape your heart. Because I do not think it's fully possible for us to value the things of God the way God values them without his presence and purpose in our life. So we begin this by praying for a burden and watching how God works. Ask God to make your heart sensitive to the way he's working in your life and amongst your neighbors, whomever they may be, wherever you go, and see how God works. Wait and watch for him to work. Commit to pray. Second step, serve. Bless and serve those people as Jesus would have when God shows them to you. And notice there's sort of a statement here I'm making. I'm convinced, because I've seen it in my own life, that when you pray this way, God is going to show you people. This is a prayer he wants honored. And in Matthew 5, 16, Jesus says, I alluded to this earlier, but I want to read it to you. Matthew 5, 16, when speaking about this type of lifestyle, Jesus says this. He says, let your light shine before everyone that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. The idea behind that is that we should be the type of people who are opportunistic with a ton of integrity. Like we are mindful of the fact that God does want to do something through us and in people's lives. And we, we look for those things. With a gentle and compassionate heart, we wait for God to work. And we follow him when he does. So what I'm saying here is that when God shows you a need in your neighbor's life, because he's going to, if you pray the first thing that I said, he's going to. You have to sort of look at that need, whatever it is, in the way Jesus would have. You have to meet it in the way Jesus would have. You have to be attentive to the way God is working and seize the opportunities when God presents them to you. Because remember, when it comes to telling others about Jesus, when it comes to any of the great disciplines of the Christian faith, sharing our faith is one of them. There is always a time to pray and there is always a time to act. Those two things are inseparable. And if you want my proof for that, I go right back to the cross. Jesus prays about his role on the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane. In fact, he actually asks God, if there's any way that cup can be removed from him, that it be so. But both he and God know that, that it can't be any other way. And so what happens is eventually he gets up off of his knees and he goes to the cross. His prayer has shaped a lifestyle rhythm. His prayer for the, for the, the world far from God requires an action on his part. And that is often the way it is with us. So as we pray for God to show us people, we need to ask God to give us the courage to act upon what it is that we pray about. And then we have to watch God work. Oftentimes that means you're just a shoulder to cry on. You meet a need physically or financially or whatever it is. You sense a need and you just try to love that person in the way Jesus would have. And then you let God do the rest. Third, critical. I'm making some assumptions here in the first two points. Here's where we'll clarify them. 
you have to make it a priority to dwell among people that are far from God. Now listen, this is going to be a hard thing, especially for those of us that have been Christians for some time. This is not a blanket statement. I'm just saying that it is a very normative reality for those of us. Sometimes what happens is, is the closer we get to God, the more sort of wired into God's people we get, the further we get from actually the world that God has sent us to see, you know, his grace sent to. For some people, this is a really hard reality to grasp. It's very common over time to see some of us sort of just so love Christian community. And that is one of our values. So please don't hear me saying like I'm against Christian community. I'm borderline a hippie in this area, okay? We love community. But what I'm saying is, is sometimes we can be so blind to what is going on in the world around us because we're so rooted in community that we forget there are neighbors in our world who are very far from God. And so subversively over time what happens is we, we sort of eject ourselves out of the very world God has sort of placed us into to be a light to shine into. And if you want to know why I say this confidently, it's because the precedent for this is Jesus himself. I want you to think about the life of Jesus. In heaven... There are no people, there is nobody who is far from God. In heaven, there is perfect unity and peace between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Holy uh, Spirit. The Holy Period, I don't know what that is. <laughs> you English majors can tell me, right? In heaven, there is a beautiful unity. And Jesus walks away from that. He leaves heaven. That's what scripture tells us. He takes on flesh and he becomes like us. And he does the very thing we're talking about here. He immerses his life in a world of unbelieving people who are very far from God and in many cases, as we know, are very hostile towards him. Why is this an important thing to point out? Because Jesus, the, the life of Jesus shows us he spends meaningful time with people who are far from him. He is in people's lives in such a way that he is presenting the very grace we're talking about. He's got a platform to engage people like this. And if you're going to be like Jesus, if I'm going to be like Jesus, this means that we have to do the same. It means our lives have to be postured to a certain degree in this way. Simply put, this does not mean that you need to formulate a, a scriptural presentation from the book of Romans on how salvation comes about. Don't get me wrong, I always encourage deeper study. I encourage, and certainly we do this in our community groups. We want you to grow and know Jesus more deeply. We want you to be able to invest in and sort of answer the questions our world asks. It's one of the reasons why we address more significant issues from the front of the room. We want to be able to be the type of people who can give a defense and account for our faith, who can speak into the matters of the world we live in in the same way Jesus did. What I am finding, though, more often than not, is that that's sort of a secondary thing. When we speak about being in people's lives that are far from God, oftentimes it's much more simple, but no less sensational. It means that you don't necessarily have to speak about the origins of evil in the world. Some people ask that question. But most people will actually just be really happy if you invited them over for supper. They would be really happy if you sensed that they were having a hard day and you, you took them out to lunch. You invested in them. You invited them to church. You brought them to a community group. You made a relational deposit in them. What you'll find is that the more you engage people like this, the more likely they are to be transparent about the questions in life that they struggle with. And so what happens is, like Jesus, when he is in the crowds, when he is in the masses, when he is with the disciples, when he is with his people, he is listening and he is responding. He's taking the prism of the gospel and he's tweaking that light to address the very questions of the hearts of the people that are asking things about God. That is simply what we do here. We get to the place where we are mindful, we listen before we speak, and then we serve and care through word and deed when the opportunity presents itself. But we'll never get to that place if, I mean, right now, and I had to do this two years ago in my own life, I had to sit down and ask, how many people do I know that are far from God? And two years ago, it was a pretty, pretty short list, and that's not a good thing. 
So let's be honest with each other and before God. Not to, I don't want this to feel like a judgment question or statement. I want it to feel like the kind of thing that God wants to show his grace in and wants us to grow in. This week, ask, how many people are you around that you are unsure of have the, hype, the type of hope that Jesus speaks about here? And just simply be that for them. Lastly, the shortest thing I'll say, and perhaps the most important of all, when you're praying, when you're blessing, when you are around people who are far from God, the last and the most important thing you have to do is go and tell. I don't know how else to say this. And I know this sounds like Southbrook and abrasive. I don't mean it to be this way, but it's very true. You cannot let these significant ideas, these truths Jesus gives us, none of us can let these things just be like another thing we notate, another thing we hear, another truth we categorize in our head, but it doesn't penetrate the heart or shape the hands. At the end of the day, there is a, there is a, a need to go and tell. When, God, when you pray and you watch and God works, at some point, you're going to have an opportunity to tell. And the best way for you to sort out what that looks like and to process that is to engage in a community group. We were talking earlier this week. I had a few meetings with some people at our church that I really care about. And I was talking to them about my message. And I just said, you know, the best way for us to process going and telling is to be around other people who are going and telling. Is to hear like what happened. And when somebody was really like, we all have good stories, like my boss who found faith. But we also have stories where people might not have done that. Or we have people in our life who we have gone and told to, but they're just really struggling. It is the way we speak to each other. It's the way God gives us access to each other's lives that actually helps us to to make this more than just a verbal truth. It makes it a reality in life. And so I simply want to say here that when God reshapes your life in this area, when he gives you the burden, you just have to go and tell. And you have to be okay with the fact that you're never going to be able to perfectly do that. I'm convinced God, is, God desires your obedience. That's what he wants. He wants our fidelity, our faithfulness to this. Fruit, that's his job, not yours or mine. So we can, with freedom, go and tell when God provides the opportunity. And we can let God do whatever it is he does in a person's heart after we've been faithful. Faithfulness is us. Fruitfulness is God. If you mix those two things up, you will live a life in Christianity that is nothing but bondage. You cannot change anything. But we can be the types of people who let God work in our lives in such a way that he changes things through us. And again, it gives us the ability to labor and love without the pressure of thinking that we have failed when we don't see what we think should happen. And we can celebrate all the more deeply when something does happen because we know it is the hand of our Father in heaven who has brought about his kingdom and his economy on earth. Now, at times, mostly because of our fear, we just assume we'll autom- people will automatically say no to something like this. You know, you probably have a person in your head, you're thinking like, if I invited them over for supper, they'd say no. Maybe they've had you over like 10 times. Maybe you owe them a supper, that kind of a thing, right? Maybe, though, we should have a different posture. Maybe we shouldn't just assume what we think people might say. Rather than assuming, we should just ask. Because what I found over the years is that we can be surprised at what God is already doing in the hearts of people. Sometimes we've sort of given them less credit than, or they need more credit than we're giving them. Because remember, God has told us he's at work in the world. And there's a confidence that can arise out of that. So remember, as you go and tell, you're following the work of the Holy Spirit and obeying the command of Jesus. Don't forget that. Don't forget that he told Mary to go and tell. Jesus did that. And we go and tell in the same way. Don't forget that. And I want to say that one day it would be really awesome. And I know that you have done this, many of you. It would be really awesome to have you standing up here sharing stories like this about how you've gone and told. And so as we enter our response time, I certainly want us to give thanks for the grace that we have received because of Jesus' death and resurrection. We don't want to forget about what just happened in the tomb. That's critical. The resurrection matters. I just want to ask us to not stop there. 
Rather, let's ask God to compel our hearts to love those whom he's put in our lives in the very same way. And so as we close this morning, ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you about the grace he has shown you in your life? If you are without his grace, let us know that. Figure out what he's trying to lead you to. And if you are in his kingdom, if you are in his grace, if you have experienced him, life, who will you go and tell that to after you leave this place today in the weeks and the months that follow when God provides you opportunities to do so? Amen.